3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to other First Nations Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience resistance of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. And good morning, everyone. How are we all doing today? I'm doing just fine, Grace. How are you? Good, good. How have you been? Yeah, very good. Very busy, but um, yeah, getting through the the, the days. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, we must be coming up to that point where it's nearly, we can look forward to spring, we're nearly in August and then it'll just be another month. Yeah, I, I actually thought that winter came, I've always been thinking like winter has always come by so late this year, I don't know if it's just me but I I generally thought it, it came by so late and it's already August and it's only, but it feels like, today was really cold, today was really cold but um, it it it's, it seems like it's a bit too late now, like it should have started earlier as well but I mean it has kind of but not really at the same time. <laughs> So I don't know, the weather keeps changing. It's like, I don't know, it seems like it's only getting colder now, but at the same time it was getting warmer. So Yeah, it I has don't... been a bit uneven, but I, I think uh, we could call it winter right now. It is pretty cold. <laughs> yeah, so we have a busy show today. We have lots yeah. of guests uh, with us, mm-hmm. um, and I believe you have the first cab off the rank, Grace. Yeah, so for those who don't know, there's actually... A writer guilt strike happening in America right now, and it's quite a big thing that's been going on for months now. Uh, basically, I'll be speaking with CEO of Writer Guilt Australia, Claire Pullen. We'll be discussing the current situation of the writer's guilt strike and how is this affecting Australia and our artists, and what can we do about it. Excellent. And then uh, we'll have Kate Orty joining us uh, from the Euroa Yes campaign. So she's uh, been actively working in the community up in the Benalla Euroa area and uh, she'll be giving us an update on their activities and perhaps also telling us what she thinks of the uh, the pamphlets that were distributed digitally yesterday uh, the yes and no uh, voice so um, yeah that'll be at 7:30 and then uh, we've got an interesting segment um, from your guest Grace? Yep, so I'll be speaking with Bridget Cook. She is a writer and critic at Over, uh, at Overland. We'll be discussing on resistance literature, which is something we're not really familiar with, even I don't know what it is. Uh, and it kind of, it is basically discusses about her research on, which focuses on the ways of reading contemporary Palestinian writing, like poetry. We want you just want to emphasize that uh, it's basically a discussion entirely on the writing and the reading, just of what she has analyzed. So, yep, we in no way comment on any particular actual political discourse in the situation for Palestine, because we know we are not the 
appropriate representation for that. So yeah, we just want our listeners to bear in mind that we will not be commenting on any of that. And then to wrap up the show at uh, 10 past 8, we'll be talking with circus performer Harley Timmerman, who is a graduate of NICA, the uh, National Institute for Circus Arts here in Melbourne. And NICA is under the auspice of uh, Swinburne University, which has uh, announced that it will freeze degree uh, admissions for the circus uh, graduate program next year. So obviously circus uh, performers and the industry at large are not happy about that. We'll be hearing from Harley, who uh, was a graduate six years ago, to hear about his experience at NICA and um, yeah, how the, uh, the news uh, has hit. So, yeah, quite a, a mixture of uh, stories today. Um, yeah. We should uh, do our headlines and then get on with the program, shouldn't we? Mm -hmm. Okay. So headlines for Wednesday, the 19th of July. Gambling experts have criticised Daniel Andrews' decision to close gambling venues at 4am, saying the new requirement does not go far enough in tackling gambling harm. The Guardian reports that Deakin University gambling expert Professor Samantha Thomas said reforms do not stack up against evidence which shows a higher risk of problem gambling after midnight and particularly after 2am. And the view was uh, endorsed by Monash University expert Dr Charles Livingston who said the damage has already been done by 4am. In addition to the 4am closures, the government announced a mandatory pre-commitment system for poker machines which will require gamblers to use an identification card with a maximum loss limit that's locked in prior to uh, playing. The amount allowed to be loaded into a machine at any time and the game spin rates have also been reduced 330,000 Victorians experience gambling harm per year, according, according to the government's figures. Yep, and coming from our news about Victoria, dairy farmers have established a breakaway group amidst their tension with Victorian Farmers Federation. This crisis within Victoria's peak farming body has deepened following the dairy, the dairy farmer members have, they have set up a breakaway group. Uh, because on Friday, the Victorian Farmers Federation rejected a resolution from disaffected grain growers that could have seen the board uh, dumped. So now dairy farmer members who make up about a third of VFF's membership and about contribute and contribute about $1 million in fees have established the organization called United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, uh, stands for UDV. President Mark Billing, who is the president of UDV, has told Victoria Country Hour they plan to form a new body that will hatched in February this year and that a draft of constitution have been created. And there are some of the foundation members who are working behind the scenes, but he has emphasised that they will not be getting sufficient value out of their VFF membership fees, but also at the same time they in no way are trying to blow up the VFF as quoted. And back to national news, the Australian Electoral Commission digitally released the official brochures setting out the yes and no cases for the referendum on a voice to parliament. 
The brochures will be posted to households prior to 14 days before referendum day, which has not yet been announced. The No Literature focuses on uncertainty and division and has been scourged by critics for spreading misinformation and the unauthorised use of statements. The statements in question were made by constitutional law expert and expert working group member Professor Craven. Professor Craven says he explicitly requested that the statements not be reproduced. Jacinta Namajinka Price has defended the information put forward in the No campaign. The brochures are not fact-checked by the Electoral Commission, so Australians are being warned to look out for misinformation. Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe took umbrage at both sides, both the yes and no cases, and promised to release her own statement written by the Black Sovereign Movement, a statement that will cut through the emotive language of the yes campaign and the fear-mongering of the Conservative no campaign, she says. Senator Thorpe calls for a treaty as the only way forward. And final news, a new drug has shows promise of possibly slowing down Alzheimer progression, according to Dementia Australia. It's called Donanamap. It functions by stimulating antibodies designed to target and eliminate amyloid plaques from the brain. Uh, they're basically proteins that form between the space of our nerve cells, and this is what plays a central role in the Alzheimer disease. The research also underscores the vital insignificance the vital significance of early diagnosis, ensuring timely access to treatment and support. However, Dementia Australia urges that we take caution optimism as the drug awaits approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration to be able to be used in Australia. And that's all we have for today. Excellent. Awesome. We're going to be heading to a song. This is called Dance of the Crab by Barry Can't Swim.
You're listening to 3CR 855am and that was Dance of the Crab by Barry Can't Swim. A great upbeat song for an early morning, so hope you're all awake by now. So I'm going to be speaking to CEO of Writer Guilds Australia, Clara Pullen, as we discuss the current situation of the Writer's Guild strike happening in America to our listeners who are unaware, this Writer's Guild strike has been happening for months now, and it's also one of uh, America's biggest strike for the writers. And we're going to be looking at how this is affecting Australia and our artists, and what can we do about it. Joining me this morning is Claire Pullen. Good morning, Claire. Good morning, Grace. Great to be here. Awesome. So can we just first get to know what is happening currently with this strike? Why why is this happening? Why is it hasn't Why has it been going on for months? Mm-hmm. So we're in week 12 now of mm-hmm. the strike. As you say, writers in America have been out on strike for quite some time. Mm-hmm. The issue at a, a really sort of high level is what's changed about the market since the streamers came in. And what this has meant is that over time, the wages and conditions of writers have eroded. Uh, and there are some big ticket issues around royalties and residuals, which is essentially how we make a living from our work when it's watched over and over, either the episode of the show or the film, mm-hmm. because that's how a lot of creative workers make a living between gigs, is that income coming in is how we pay the bills. And what the big studios and the streamers are planning to do about AI in terms of using them to replace creative workers. Now, these are issues common to writers and creative workers, not just screen workers, all over the world. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really protracted strike because the studios are not prepared to sit down and do a deal on this. And the development we saw last week is that the Actors Guild, SAG, mm-hmm. who have very similar issues, around pay and royalties and AI, voted to go out on strike as well. So we've now got, I think, the biggest strike in the industry, certainly in the US. These two unions haven't been out together since, I think, the 70s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's looking like it's going to be quite a protracted strike. Mm, Interesting. And... But obviously because I guess with the law and everything and how things work for our artists here in Australia and in America will be a bit different. So what I understand in rights, uh, in, in regards to this, there's a jurisdiction like the AWG jurisdiction. Uh, mm. Is that something, uh, can, can you explain what that means in terms of like uh, uh, what works from Australia and production companies uh, will be affected? Yeah, it's a really good question. So... When they first went out, the WGA put out what, what's called their strike rules about what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. And we spent quite a bit of time working with our members and with the WGA about what the flow-on effects will be here in Australia. Because as you say, the industrial relations systems are different. We work under an Australian contract. They have American contracts. So we have been uh, working with our members individually when they have questions. And we also have um, strike rules out to say, this is okay and this isn't. The reason that we've given that guidance to Australian writers Hmm. is that if you cross the picket line, you will never be eligible to be a member of the WGA again, which means you can't work in the US. Now, none of my members want to. Everyone's holding strong and is really clear that we're in solidarity with American writers and that we want them to succeed. And that's why we've got our advice out about what you can and can't do here in Australia. And we have seen a significant uptick in calls to our office 
just making sure that people know what they can do and where. Mm, I see. That's that's amazing. So I guess in a way for WGA, we uh, you you're basically a I guess the body, the protection body for all the Australian writers and artists, whoever who are obviously in the same values with WGA. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. We think solidarity is really important, and, and it's not just us. I met yesterday with um, one of my international counterparts. All the writers' guilds around the world have taken a position very similar to us in Great Britain and Canada and Europe. Uh, because of how global our industry is, the streamers are multinationals that operate in every company in, in every country. Mm. Um, the issues are the same, regardless of where we're at in our bargaining cycles and what our contracts are up to at the moment. Mm. At, at the top level, the, the issues really are the same. Are we being paid enough to feed our families and put a roof over our head? How do we benefit from the creative work that comes from us and not from studio executives? And what are we going to have in terms of an industry 10 or 15 or 20 years in the future with the changes in technology? All of those are issues that affect all of us around the world. Mm, I see. But then, uh, I, but then I've heard that like because the few Australian uh, actors and artists, they have been coming back because they've been affected by the situation. Is that so? Is this... Are they? Are they? Do you, do you think like like they're all coming back home because of the whole situation, or is it just more of like because of things that you just can't do anymore? Oh, look, it will depend um, what the project was and mm. where it's up to, and and who's going out. Um, people will have seen some of our biggest international Australian stars, names people will know, like Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie. Mm. These people are union members, and Margot Robbie actually got um, snapped on the. Barbie red carpet going, yep, I'm a member of my guild and when we go out on strike, I'm out. Mm. So production um, will stop on some of the things being made in the US and depending on what the deal is, uh, where the money's come from, whether it's done under an Australian or an American contract here, we will see flow-on effects to our production sector here and it's one of the reasons that everyone is coming together to save the studios just do a deal. Uh, we're, as I said, we're now in week 12 mm. of the writer's strike in the US. At week seven, so halfway now, more or less, the strike had already cost the studios more money than it would have cost them to pay the writer's claims in full. Wow. And that's that's I think that should continuously happen, uh, be happening because um, these these companies are not paying the writers for what they deserve. And honestly, that's that's great. That's going well. That's really good. So yeah, and and I understand that this is sort of first time that actors are joining right the strike because I think I saw a news saying that it's it's the first time that everyone's coming together. Is that correct? It's the first time in a long time. I think it's been about fifty years mm. since both have been out together. And I think it shows you both how serious the issues are, mm. but also how much uh, writers in the industry have in common with actors, but also with composers and sound designers and lighting engineers and the crew. When it fundamentally comes down to things like, are you being paid enough to feed your family? Those are issues that don't discriminate by which particular craft you're in. Mm, I see. That's interesting. But it's also, but it wasn't just about this, really. Like as you mentioned, I remember you mentioned in the beginning something about the AI. Is that mm. what? Isn't that one of the main situations that's also going on right now? Like, our, I, I, I don't think we understood too much about the AI part. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, look, AI is definitely one of the things that 
the guilds want to negotiate around and the studios are really digging their heels in about. So I'll give you an example of what AI could do to an actor's career. So what the studios want to do is if you're a background actor, if you're an extra in, say, a crowd scene, what they want to be able to do is capture your image and your likeness and store it and then use it in future films without your consent, sometimes without your knowledge, and you could be a virtual and AI extra in the background of 50 films, perhaps films you wouldn't have chosen to be in if you'd been asked about what the content was. And you will only be paid for one day's work. Oh, wow. Wow. So so is, so basically, it's kind of like they're just paying them for what they've done at the part and, uh, for, at the beginning and then after that, they, they don't matter anymore. Like the writers don't matter anymore. That's right. So they're looking to do that sort of work. Uh, essentially taking people's creative output, digitizing it and using it in the future without paying for it or without even their consent. So it's a really big issue across all mm. the creative workers in the screen industry and others more broadly, but it's really acute at the moment in screen. I see. Yep, that that's actually it shouldn't that shouldn't that shouldn't be happening because obviously creative work should be continued and continue to be I would say paid uh, for all the writers. Uh, Claire, we don't actually have uh, much time left, but just one last thing from you. What 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 uh, what can, what can our listeners do to help this situation and help to join in solidarity? Well, look, I think one of the things that listeners can do for us, but also to um, help themselves out, frankly, jump on social media and start having a look through hashtag WGA strike or hashtag SAG strike. There are some really funny signs. Writers are quite hysterical. Uh, there's someone who goes out regularly and does a vibe check, talking about which is the horny picket, which is the intellectual picket. Um, retweet, retweet, share, talk to your family and friends about why it's really important for workers to make sure that their wages and conditions are suitable. Uh, workers don't go out on strike lightly. Anyone who's now on strike in the US is not being paid at all. And that should give you a sense of just how important these issues are, that people are willing to go without wages to make the point about what their future in their industry looks like. Mm, yeah, and I I hope everyone j- j- joins together to help help with this. So thank, uh, thank you so much, Claire, for giving us the time today. Great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Cheers. And that was Claire Pullen, the CEO of Writers Guild Australia, where we discussed about the current situation ongoing with the Writers Guild strike in America and how has this been affecting our Australian artists and what can we do about it. Um, that was Yeah, that was interesting stuff, right, Claudia? Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, I think um, uh, many of us probably have might known by now about this situation going on in America because it's. I think it's been going on. I think I reported. I think I also mentioned about this in the headlines two months, three months back. So mm-hmm. yeah, and I yeah, Claire just mentioned it was a week twelve. It's already week twelve. So that was like, yeah, that's like three months. Three months. Yeah, it's been. It's and it's still gonna go on. It's still gonna go on. And I think I I really. Also, I really respect the artists and the actors for going on the strike because, as Claire mentioned as well, they don't get paid for this, obviously. And I think that's what, you know, when it comes to standing for our rights, this is what we have to do. And mm. yeah, I really I really respect them for that. And it intersects with uh, the conversation we had last week with the uh, legal um, copyright 
expert. Yeah, we were talking about AI because this, we were this talking AI. about uh, the way in which um, exactly you know, authors in that case. Yeah, we cannot lose to the AI. We cannot. We. <laughs> I don't think. I don't honestly. As much as the AI is really helpful for many of the things we want to do, but we really cannot be losing to them because we. We 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 still need jobs. We still need to do things. We still want to have that human aspect in and everything of our creative work. And I think that's the beauty of creating something for for the for the arts. Really, that's that's right. Yeah, it's also interesting. She mentioned uh, you know Margot Robbie and Chris Hemsworth as big uh, Australian names in that um, protest. But um, there must be a lot of actors that are not earning what uh, Robbie and Hemsworth yeah, earn that's, that's, that are also yeah. um, impacted and whose livelihoods are much more dependent on the outcome of this. Mm. So, yeah, it's important for for all players in the industry and, and also, I, I guess, um, a new people coming into the industry yeah, who the young... could be discouraged mm. um, by the the uncertainty of how this will play out. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's keep on this. Um, yep, let's hope things go well and the, these companies finally agree to the agreements that these writers want and let's hope the best for them. And, yeah, Claudia, you, you have a next segment coming up from you? We do. Um, but I think we've got some announcements first. Oh, yes. You're listening to 3CRA 55AM. Stay tuned. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitix. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar. Art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. The fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes the fears, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white fear to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Ross House has community meeting rooms available for hire at subsidised rates. 
perfect for small meetings, student study groups, Zoom conferencing and seminars. Facilities include free Wi-Fi, display screens for presentations, projector and sound system and a Zoom conferencing system. HEPA filter units have been placed in every meeting room. You can book and pay via their website, rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, Grace and Claudia. Our next guest sums up her work in three words, community, culture and climate change. Kate Orty is an author, barrister, historian, environmentalist and passionately community member. In March, she spoke to us about her revelatory book, O'Leary of the Underworld, the untold story of the Forest River Massacre, about the murder of over 20 Aboriginal people in WA's Kimberley region. Today, she's here to talk about an aspect of her community work, campaigning for the Yes to the Voice to Parliament. Welcome, Kate, and good morning. Hi, Claudia. Must be chilly where you are. (laughs) It it is chilly, yes. (laughs) So, Kate, um, the pamphlets uh, were digitally released last night, the yes and no cases. So we'll have a chat about that afterwards, later in the interview. But uh, I first wanted just to hear from you and and what you've been doing in in your area um, of Victoria. Um, So why should we vote yes to the voice. Okay, two things there. I'm getting a bit of echo, but uh, I'll talk on. Um, in relation to the area that I'm in, so this is northeast Victoria, we're part of the uh, federal electorate of Indi, and our community in Euroa has been pretty active organising around a number of things. So the area itself is full of people who take democracy very seriously and take our commitment to doing things that improve social, economic and um, political opportunities for people seriously. And the Yes campaign is just one of a number of the things that we are really committed to working on. Uh, Historically, and it sounds very strange to say it, but historically here in Euroa, it's been quite a conservative electorate. There's no doubt about that. But over time, we've got very exercised about things like poker machines, and we had a big campaign against that uh, last decade and won that in our small town. We've had a campaign about better climate change uh, science communication, 
and we had a big series about that here in Euroa where people came from everywhere over a period of 12 months. And recently we've had a lot to do with the ARTC and Inland Rail and we've been successful in getting them to change their infrastructure offer in our small town. So we take it very seriously is the, is the thing, I suppose. With the Yes campaign, a number of our people in town and around the region have worked um, worked with Aboriginal people, have quite deep links with Aboriginal people and took the view that this was something where we needed to ask them what they thought but also get on with doing something about how we could improve our whole country by engaging with um, the Constitution and getting Aboriginal people both recognised in it and their voice enshrined. So, And we started in... Oh, we started in December last year planning for a thing we called our Yes Picnic and we held that in February before the Yes campaign really got underway and we've continued to be active in um, in the region since then. Does that help? Absolutely. <laughs> to get on with? Yeah, yes. very, um, very uh, clear that uh, it's a passionate and an engaged community that you're part of. And um, so you kicked off with the picnic. What sort of things have you been doing to bring the community along since then? Since then, we've had a, we've opened up a shop front in the main street of Euroa. We've got a really um, helpful shopkeeper who lets us use her shop front from time to time. We've used that for other campaigns. And we've been staffing that for oh, the last two months every Saturday. And we get down there and we talk to people and we hand things out and we make sure that we see ourselves as part of the whole country's enterprise in this, in that we don't just talk to ourselves, we talk to people who are passing through, tourists, people who've come from overseas who happen to be looking at what goes on in the regions, etc. So we've continued to do that and we've also had a really deep link to the Yes 23 campaign through picking up merchandise from Trades Hall where there's this fantastic group of people who've been extraordinarily helpful and Trades Hall has made it possible for us to generate um, interest through things like core flutes and brochures and the guide and the, um, the material that's out there at the moment through Yes 23. And the other thing we've done is we've got onto the Yes 23 website and we've um, got ourselves a local group. So our local group is Euroa for Yes. And apart from being Euroa for Yes, we've got people from Avenal, people from Mansfield, people from north of us in Benalla where there's a very active group. And we've just, over last night, I just had a long conversation with people from Daniloquin and also from Griffith about what they're doing. So we're sharing what we do with others who are interested in doing something themselves. And you mentioned people coming past the shop front. I just uh, wondered what sort of response, you know, and what sort of questions are people um, coming to you with? Oh, people have asked us a number of things. We, we set the shop front up so that it's also an art exhibition. So some of us have paintings that we've purchased from Aboriginal people in communities over time. And so it's an exhibition so people come in to have a look at Aboriginal art as well from all over the country. But the questions we get asked are, well, why why here in Euroa? I, I mean, some people are quite surprised that a small regional town would be doing what we're doing. I think they think we're a bit of back blocks up here and they, they get, get a surprise about that. We've had people ask us, well, what would it mean? We've had um, people say, well, I'm sitting on the fence. Why would I think this was a good idea? 
And that we've also had people say, look, I'm for yes, but I've got other people in my family or my associates who aren't, so what can I talk to them about? And for those people, we generally hand them material and have a chat about what they can do with others. And we share what we see as a really simple theory of change with those people, which is you've got to start where you are. That's one of the first things we always we always tell people. Just get started. And there are going to be steps forward and steps back, and you're going to be disappointed sometimes with some of what you do, but get started. And we tell them the next thing you've got to do is get organised. So that's you know an old trade unionist thing, I suppose, but it's also important for communities and social change. And the next thing we say to them is when you've done all of that, you've also got to make sure that you're visible, show what you did, show other people how you did it, encourage them to know that they can do it too. And fascinatingly, one of the things that we know has come through from the campaigning for the Teals, for instance, in recent federal elections, is that stuff about showing what you did. We can, none of us will forget Monique Ryan's campaign where she couldn't put stuff on the hotel wall, so suddenly there's a bunch of people out there with core flutes. And it really did impact people, showing what you did. So we talk to people about that theory of change and we encourage them to think about themselves in that way. With the Yes Picnic, for instance, a number of people came up from Melbourne and they went away and I know that Lilydale themselves had a Yes Picnic. In talking to the Daniloquin crew last night, they're thinking about a Yes Picnic. And so we say, look, these are the things we did. You can do them too. They're not that hard. If we can do them in a small country town, so can you. As to why people should vote Yes, I mean, I'm deeply committed to it from a professional and personal background, and I know that others in our group are the same. So we, we are deeply committed to it. But we also see it as one of the ways, and Linda Burney expressed it very well the other day, in my view, without wanting to patronise the minister, but she expressed it very well when she said, look, this is about really practical things. It's about jobs, it's about education, it's about health and it's about housing. And as a lawyer who was involved in setting up Koori Courts, I know that stuff like what happens in justice is, or injustice as some Aboriginal people would say, what happens in that is deeply impacted by those really sort of seemingly unconnected things for some people. I mean, housing has an impact on justice. And if we can get Aboriginal people to talk directly to politicians about things like housing before they set up the legislation that impacts them all, then we're going to get better outcomes. And I can say from my experience that something like housing is, is it's something that most of us don't, many of us don't think about, but it's absolutely critical. So if the Yes Vote makes provision for a group of Aboriginal people to talk to politicians to make sure they don't get it wrong before they set things up or that they at least listen and take on board what Aboriginal people say are the issues, that has to be a better outcome for Aboriginal people. But in my experience too, I think this stuff is better for all of us. When we set up the Koori Courts, both in here in Victoria and then another court that I was involved in in Western Australia, it didn't just affect Aboriginal people coming through the courts. It actually made our whole court more sensitised to everybody who came through the court, including people who were looking for domestic violence orders, people who were being prosecuted, people who were there to just pay their fines. We became in those courts, and I think it's true to say it's ongoing, a better place for everybody because we started to think about everybody as um, people for whom we were you know, using, providing a service or whatever else. So I think there's also that. 
And coming back to the local community, um, mm-hmm. have you been engaging with the Tangarong mob up yep. where you are and how, how have they engaged with the Euroa Yes group? Okay. We, we always engage with the Tangarong mob in everything we do, from the Euroa Arboretum through to the other things we're doing about um, the inland rail. We've let them know what we're doing about that and we've also been in touch with them about the Yes campaign. I don't want to talk for the Tangarong about what they see as the process um, for the future because they will talk for themselves. But we, we certainly take it really seriously. There isn't a meeting we have without we've made sure that we've let people in Tungarong know that we're doing stuff that might impact them or might not impact them. And we've found that we've, um, in doing so, developed a relationship that's built, in my view, on trust. We've forged that relationship. And we work hard at it. We make sure that we, we take those... Um, proactive steps. We don't just sit around and wait for the Tungarong to talk to us. We let them know what we're doing. And there will be differing views in the Aboriginal community about yes and about other things and a number of people have raised that with with us when they've talked to us at the shop front. The upshot of that is that we respond with what we know to be the survey that's been done by the Australian Institute where 83% of all Aboriginal people who were surveyed agree that um, there ought to be a voice and they want to see it happen sooner rather than later. So we we take people through that. And just going to the point about keeping Aboriginal people aware of what we're doing so that we're not um, we're not being, you know, the great white missionaries again, like we always have been since we got here. Um, we, we take the view that in accepting there are other views, we're not here to persuade Aboriginal people of what's best for them if they have a different view. That's really up to them. Sure. Um, and just on the uh, the yes and the no, if we believe the polling, um, support for the yes is slipping. What's your observation of the mood and position of the community you're in? Have you noticed changes in the sort of engagement with the yes campaign? Mm-hmm. Look, I'd say, I'd say that we're probably not necessarily representative of what's happening in other places, but we haven't noticed a slipping of the interest in the yes campaign. And it may be that, you know, there's a level of self-selection. It may be that people don't come into the shop who aren't interested in Aboriginal art, aren't interested in Aboriginal people, aren't interested in the yes vote and will be voting no. I think it's our experience there is a very solid inflexible no vote. There's no doubt about that. We take the view that we're not going to persuade those people to change their minds. But there is also a group of people who really do just want more information and who are generous in the way they see the need for Aboriginal people to assume and resume their proper place in this country. And they're the people we talk to. But what we have found, and this is not just me, but everybody who's staffed the shop at any given time, what we have found is people are routinely really surprised and and delighted to see that we are doing this. And we've had a lot of people come through the door who've said, oh, I haven't been able to get a call flute. Can I take one? Or can I have that material because I want it for what I want to do? And they've gone away equipped with material that they plan to use in their own discussions with their own local communities or friends or family. So we've found a route... It's 
not universal because people will walk past that. Oh, I don't agree with that. That's a no. I'm voting no or whatever. Uh, but we've found pretty routinely people are excited to see us doing it, welcome the fact that we're doing it and want to be part of it. Might I say that in the last three weeks we have handed out something like about 100 courses and we know that they are going up on people's front um, front fences. So people are out there saying, I want to show and demonstrate my support for the yes vote. How can I do it? And a core flute is one of the ways to do it. But on the weekend, we put up two core flutes outside the Northy Hotel, which is a place where we often meet for our conversations. And somebody got out there with their tin of blue paint and wrote all over it, no, or wrote all over and both of them, no. But, of course, by the next morning, we'd seen it. We'd got out with the paint stripper and we've, um, we fixed our core flute. So we're not, we're not backing down and um, we know that there are people who are opposed to what we do. And we're going to have to wrap up in a moment, but I just wanted to um, run past you something you said a while back. Uh, you, you said that I think making difficult subjects more approachable for general audiences is one of the great communication challenges for our age. So the Yes campaign's official statement was uh, digitally released by the Electoral Commission yesterday. Do you think the National Yes campaign has got its messaging right in the pamphlet or will people be confused? Uh, I think people who want to be confused or talk about confusion will continue to say that. I think thoughtful people will pick the document up and read it and be informed. But I think there's a range of ways in which you can inform people. And a lot of people aren't going to read a 2,000-word essay. They're just not going to do it. So we have to have a lot of other things in our kit bag. And that's why we think being extraordinarily visible and talking to people, having the conversations is critically important. One of the things that came through from the Koori Court, which was, you know, that wasn't an easy thing to do to sell that to a regional community that might have been opposed. One of the things that came through at the end of my time here before I went to WA was people were talking about how we had a sentencing conversation in that court. Now, a sentencing conversation is not how everybody sees the law operating and certainly people would some people would jump chivvy that. But it's what, it's what we did. We had a conversation about it. We've got to do this. We've got to talk to the people who are um, prepared to listen and prepared to be thoughtful. Know when to walk away because you're not going to change somebody's mind and use all of the things that are available to us to get that um, difficult conversation happening, just happening, and know that you've made your best effort at it. It won't be easy. It will be a challenge for some of us, but sometimes there'll just be enormous joy in having a good conversation with a person who's willing to listen. Do it. And finally, um, the yes statement gives eight reasons why Australians should vote yes. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell us in one sentence what your simplest, clearest reason is? Oh, we've had people up here say to us who are conservatives, they're going to vote yes because it's the decent thing to do. Thank you very much and best of luck with the campaign. Good on you. Thanks for your call. Happy to talk. Take Thanks, care. Kate. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was author, barrister, historian and environmentalist Kate Orty speaking about the Yes campaign work being undertaken in the Euroa region. And you can find out more about uh, the Yes campaign by going to yes23, that's uh, 23, .com.au and uh, you can also access a lot of that uh, information that Kate was referring to in our conversation there.
that was that was a quite a insightful conversation quite yeah 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 and quite um inspiring as well mm. that sort of not just active engagement within their community but also bringing others along from neighboring regions and sharing of information and that attitude of showing what you can do so that others um, are inspired to, to do also. Yeah, I just I think talking with the communities is a very uh, important uh, but one of the best ways to understand what the indigenous people want and what they and why we should vote yes for the campaign. Obviously, I I'm not eligible to vote for the yes campaign, so all I can do is um, really try to understand and help to support with whatever I can educate myself on. But yep, uh, I I think Kate was uh, Kate was really good with uh, explaining why uh, how people are not gonna read the because I because what mm-hmm. I understand is that it is a very long pamphlet. I didn't I didn't I didn't realize like they're gonna because I well, I mean sorry what I understand was that they're going to give this long pamphlet to people and I'm just like but people are not going to read that like that's too long like you know you don't have time for that so well uh, I think that was the whole uh, argument about whether we should have a you know pamphlet at all mm. that it was quite outdated but uh, I think it was part of the deal that the no yeah. campaign insisted on in, o- in order to get the actual referendum bill passed so yeah, yeah. we'll be getting a, a um, drop in the letterbox later in the year but um Yes, you can access it online, of course, as well at the Electoral Commission. Yes, and yep. So we're going to be heading to a song now. This is called "Little Town Big Heart" by Fred Ryan.
the table and the songs and the stories travel on the spirit of the people here make you believe that you can rise up rise up through it all as a dam across the river a star That was Little Town Big Hearts by Red、uh, Fred Ryan. So we're going to going to be going into a very interesting topic right now、uh, as we go to, go into a bit more about language and discussions of Palestinian writing. So I'll be speaking to Bridget Quirk. She is a writer and critic at Oberlin, and we'll be discussing on resistance literature. This is something new that I'm not very particularly familiar about as well. So, yep, as you join me, as you join me this morning to listen to talk to listen to about this, we'll hopefully be able to understand more. But but yes, this is going to be really exciting. Uh, exciting, sorry. And then we were discussing her research, that, where she fo- has focused on the ways of reading contemporary Palestinian writing, like poetry, and、uh, which particularly sheds light on the legacy of resistant lit- literature that pre-、uh, precedes it. We just want to emphasize that the discussion is entirely on the ways of re-、uh, the ways of reading and and, and, and writing of the Palestinian. Uh, Palestinian contemporary po-、uh, poetry and all.、Uh, in no way do we comment on actual political discourse on the situation in Palestine, Palestine, because we know that we are not the actual representation appropriate for that. So, you're listening to GCR 855 AM. Joining me this morning is Bridget Quirk.、Uh, we are a writer and critic at Overland. Bridget, are you able to hear me now? Yes, I can hear you. Oh, finally! Yay! We got you on the. Li- we got you live on radio. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah. So, oh, I've I think we've lost a bit too much of time off because just because of sorting now, but that's all good. So we're just gonna head straight into what we're gonna be chatting about.、Uh, really sorry for all that trouble just now. Yep. So, can we can we first understand what is resistance literature? What does that mean? Yeah. Sure. So, um, in the context of Palestine, which is the kind of space literary space that I've been working in. Palestinian writing has always been really integral to the country's liberatory politics. You've got、um, figures that are really well known that kind of developed this type of writing called resistance literature. Figures like Nasan Kanafani and Mahmoud Darwish. They've got this enduring legacy、um, for their role in the project towards Palestinian revolution.、Um, these kind of figures. Particularly for us in the Anglophone world,、um, are almost like unimaginably widely read 
and Palestinian communities. They're like real household names. Um, and so part of the reason that these kind of writers have this reach is that after the Nakba began in 1948, the resistance literature, these kinds of figures were writing, was distributed and disseminated really widely. It was really treated as an instrument in Palestine's political tool belt. So resistance literature is kind of uh, a type of writing that was developed um, and kind of proliferated um, in the kind of after the 1948, mm-hmm. um, but is also, I think, a sort of broader category for kind of all um, types of writing that have a kind of a movement behind it or a movement towards. Yeah. Mm, that's very interesting. Is there a reason why uh, the U.S. Got, uh, have, you decided to choose to research on Palestinian writing? Is there, it, what, what, what's so special about the Palestinian writing that made this discovery for you? Um, so for someone who is really interested in both poetry, literature and politics, um, Palestine was actually a really, um, it really made sense as a fit for me to focus my study on. Mm-hmm. Um, Palestine, Palestinian writing has been really important to the like, political project of, um, of Palestine and um, you have this cultural and social significance of literature in places like Palestine and the rest of the Arab world that we don't really have in um, in the West. So I care about the, po- the political project of Palestine and I care about poetry um, and literature. And so, because both of those things are really important for Palestine, I guess that's why that's where my focus is. Mm, I see. So I, I guess now we can just look at a few ways you have put on ways to read the Palestinian contemporary writing. You have, you've definitely put out a lot of really beautiful examples talking about that that analyzes and discusses about the poems and what what they say uh, that helps you to understand and read about resistance literature so do you want to share a bit of what what some of that were yeah so i was talking before about that kind of pre-millennial um, type of resistance writing if you fast forward to the 21st century um, when you encounter contemporary palestinian writing here and now specifically English language works that the space I'm in, you often see this almost kind of servant linking back in reviews and responses by readers um, and critics to resistance literature produced before the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's a problem in and of itself. I think many of these contemporary writers, um, people like Noor Hindi or Muhammad Al-Kurd, they themselves are alluding to those rock star writers of the 70s and 80s and 90s in their work. But I think it does the contemporary writers a bit of a disservice to read them only in relation to that historical legacy without acknowledging, one, that there's been a material shift in the institutional support for Palestinian resistance literature, um, and two, that this writing is exciting and generative in its own ways in its own right. So, yeah, something I'm interested in is finding a way of reading that acknowledges the legacy of Palestinian resistance literature while being firmly forward-looking. And so I think part of how we can do this is by fostering a literary discourse that focuses on expansiveness, um, something that doesn't draw from that pre-millennial legacy I was talking about is a sense of the community-building potential of literature. So there are these rich historical ties, for example, between 
black and Palestinian resistance movements. And I think there has been a resurgence of writing that articulates this kind of cross-struggle solidarity mm. with the rise of BLM, but also with other decolonial and climate and workers' movements. So thinking about the role of readers and critics, I think we have a responsibility to read in community, to actually seek out these kinds of connections in our reading. Yep, and just as you mentioned about the whole uh, cross-struggle solidarity, that w- that was a very interesting bit that I uh, uh, read on a, a part of your article. What 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 does that actually mean? Actually, I'm not I, I wasn't able to really understand entirely. Yeah, so thinking about this as a, a reading experience, I think for me the most generous and exciting ways to think about literature and poetry in particular is not so much focused on what the writing is about, mm-hmm. but what the writing invokes. And like, what do I mean by that? If you come to a work looking only to identify what it is about, you're kind of reducing it to paraphrase, right? You're looking to solve the writing and ultimately put it back on the shelf. If you think instead about what is invoked, your reading can be so much more expansive and this approach is open to anyone, regardless of their familiarity with literature. So it might invoke for you uh, a feeling, a memory, a person, attention, another poem, another piece of writing. And what I'm saying here is maybe it can invoke a sense of community that's connected to and located in other resistance movements and their writings too. So as soon as you start looking for these connections, at least for me, um, I started finding them. So a couple of examples Noor Hindi, who I mentioned before, has this brilliant essay called Identity Politics Confessional. It's kind of a love letter to literature as a form of social being for underread and minority writers. Um, George Abraham, another um, writer based in America, has contributed to the Climate Notebook, which is a project by the Asian American Writers Workshop collecting poems and essays and reporting on the climate struggles and its links to other struggles. Um, another good one, Dana al has written extensively about the connections between workers' struggles and Palestinian resistance. Um, I recommend checking out her poem, The Workers Love Palestine. Basically, I found that in all the interviews and essays with contemporary Palestinian writers I've read, they themselves are making these connections to other, um, other struggles and other movements. So I think it's only right that as readers, we seek them out too. Well, Bridget, unfortunately, because of everything that's just like going on, I wish we, I wish we could speak to you more to discuss a bit more of what you could uh, uh, talk about in your article. So, just just one final thing before we we let you go. So, uh, what what do you think that our listeners should, un- should understand with resistance literature to understand Palestinian writing? Because uh, I remember, because I know at the end you mentioned in your article about how it's uh, in a way of like a sort of a return, like that's mm. yeah. So what 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 can listeners understand to make sure they uh, to like understand about resistance literature basically? Yeah, um, I don't think writers are like hiding the secrets like needed to unlock free Palestine in metaphors and poems. I think if they knew how we might achieve a just resolution for Palestine, they'd probably be shouting it from the rooftop. But I think what resistance literature can do is articulate the various tensions and anxieties and impossibilities and hopes of a movement, which I think is actually a really profound activist contribution. So like 
articulating how seeing the cycles of violence against Palestinians and the media is really exhausting, but not as exhausting as like the media's inattention to the power imbalances um, in Palestine and Israel. Like to articulate frustration with the bureaucratic um, language of solutions for Palestine, while still wanting and needing action from those bureaucratic institutions. I would say reading resistance literature and Palestinian literature in particular, it's not about um, trying to unlock solutions or like figure out what everything means. It's more about being able to experience a sense of solidarity where um, some complications and tensions can be bound up in the hope as well. Mm, yep. So and it, this basically celebrates the whole radical potential of resistance literature. Mm. Yep. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Bridget, for t- t- joining us. I know you're all the way overseas at the moment. You're not actually. Uh, you're not uh, actually in Melbourne, but and but thank you so much for joining us this morning. No problem at all. Thanks for having me, and have a great day. You too. Thank you. You take care. Thanks. Thank you. And that was. Bridget Cook, the writer and critic at Overland, speaking on resistance literature, where we discussed the, her research that she has done focusing on ways of reading contemporary Palestinian writing, like, for example, poetry. Uh, and this particularly sheds light on the legacy of resistance literature, literature that precedes it. Uh, we just want to emphasize uh, again that we our discussion has entirely been on the ways of reading and writing resistance literature in Palestinian writing. So in no way did we have comment on the actual political discourse on the situation in Palestine. Yep. So that was a very interesting topic that I wish we could have developed more. But yeah, yeah, yeah it was very interesting the way. Um, your speaker distinguished between just reading something and looking at the content and the meanings from that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Versus feeling and letting mm. the writing evoke other connections, yeah. and then and then looking into other writings that uh, may be connected or have a, have other meanings for you, and you know, extending that whole experience of of reading and um, hearing. Yeah, I think because we sometimes we dwell a lot too much on like the actual situation and things going on that we kind of have, I guess, non a specific stance towards how we understand the way we interpret language and I think I think language is actually so important because there's while there's so many ways of interpreting interpreting what this means what that means but then at the same time I guess with the uh, and as well but then I guess with, with the help of like resistance literature the potential of it actually it is very immaculate it's it, it speaks wide about many mm. things and yeah like like uh, sorry like like Bridget mentioned Workers' struggles and yeah. yeah, all this. So all this. So I actually, it does. I, but at the same time, while it speaks on the actual political situation, it's also there's more to what it means when it comes to resisting mm. to resistance. And like Bridget mentioned at the end as well, that resistance literature is like a call for return. And if we really look at how the as we read all these stories and all, if we really recognize the ability for it to expand, it actually emulates and rally and sustain it it takes the best from what resistance literature mm. means. So, and yeah. also, you know, contributes to community building and solidarity. 
Yep, and oh yeah, and also she mentioned like cross struggle solidarity as well. Like, yeah, it, it speaks volumes on a lot, a lot of things, mm. like you know, and very important topics, and actual things that are going on. But at the same time, yep, much to think about. The beauty of the art of reading, yeah, and writing. <laughs> well, we're going to head into our final segment now. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Harley Timmermans uh, about his experience as a circus performer and a graduate of NICA. So currently Australia's premier circus school is in limbo following the announcement by its host organisation Swinburne University of Technology to freeze enrolments for its graduate degree course next year. So NICA or the National Institute of Circus Arts, is located in Paran, Nam, and it operates under the auspice of Swinburne University. Swinburne's placed, placed a pause on new degree enrolments, and it's left the circus community devastated. So Harley uh, Timmermans is a specialist aerial artist who graduated from NICA in 2017 and he's joining me now to share his perspective on this development and tell us a bit about his experience at NICA and why he believes the course should continue. Good morning, Harley. Hi, good morning. Pleasure to be here. Lovely to have you. So before we jump into the, the, the NICA experience, can you tell us what an aerial artist does? Uh, so they basically swing from the roof. <laughs> so I, my aerial specialty specifically is aerial straps. It's basically like Roman rings, but it's like two belts instead of the wooden circles. So I basically hang off those and get all tangled and climb up and down them. And you do a lot of it with just one arm. I saw some photos yes. of you, and yeah, your yes. upper body strength must be incredible. Oh, yeah, I've currently got a frozen shoulder, so I was looking at your <laughs> manoeuvres and positioning and thinking, how does he do that? <laughs> it does get a bit awkward sometimes. Yeah, it takes a bit of practice. So tell us about your time at NICA, what you were studying, and how did it contribute to the skills you have today? Well, I studied, so at Nike, you study uh, two specialties. So in a lot of circus schools, you get, you know, maybe one or two specialties, but we do a group act um, that we pick. Usually it's like acro or juggling or some aerials, and then you pick two solo specialties. So um, you get to learn quite a lot. Uh, and I, my other specialty was steer wheel. So <clears throat> the other things you get to do are like general acrobatics, like handstands and tumbling, and you also do a bunch of like dance classes and performance classes and... Some of your time is spent learning about business and uh, like injury prevention and anatomy so you can manage yourself while you're putting your body under like, such stressful loads. So I did the Certificate 4 course. Uh, so I did. it was like a preliminary course to get into the Bachelor. I didn't um, know how far I wanted to take it, so I started there and then I absolutely fell in love with it on day one. So I went and auditioned for the Bachelor. I did that three years. So I was there for four years in total. And it completely changed my life. Like, I got to travel the world. I've been all around the UK, all around Australia. I went to Europe with Head First Acrobats. I've been on cruise ships. Um, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic. It's been a, a great life. Um, and I'm not ready for it to stop. And it's a real, it's a, it's a huge shame to think that perhaps, uh, uh, you know, no wave of new students is going to get to experience the same, the same thing that I got to experience. Sure. 
We'll come to that in a moment, but I just wanted to hear more about the the course, yeah. which has been paused. So it's a three-year Bachelor of Circus Arts. It's the only yeah. course of its kind in Australia. Can you tell us what makes it unique? Um, so I think it's like, where, where else in Australia can you learn this kind of thing? Like, I got a, I got a Bachelor in Circus. Not many people can say that. I think that um, there's a lot of, like, gymnastics careers or dance careers that, you know, they might end at a young age, and this can extend it into adulthood. Uh, you know, it goes to, um, it extends further than people think. Uh, and the people, like, secondly, the people, never have I ever been around so many passionate, motivated, inspiring, weird, wonderful, and wacky, hardworking people. Like, I developed some incredible friendships. Um, and, yeah, I really hope that people get to experience the same thing in um, the future. Uh, so when you talk... Would be, oh, sorry. Continue. Sorry. Um, the third thing would be like, it's a, it's a future place of work for a lot of people. So, um, in, you know, theater production in rigging and coaching, all of these skills are like pretty transferable. So, um, to other entertainment and education industries. So when I stop performing, I'll have some of these opportunities, but you know, um, I hope things keep going positively. Otherwise, you know, we might not get that kind of thing in the future. So, and in terms of the yeah. the the level of um, expertise that you develop in that course, um, being three years versus the one year certificate, yep. that must take you to a completely different performance uh, standard, and mm. and then position you for the roles that you you, you need to do. Um, yeah, well, it turns it turns the students into you know you can have a year of training or you can have three to four years and become like a world-class performer. So, yeah, it, do, it does make a drastic difference. And I guess internationally um, that positions you as well in terms of yeah. being recognised around the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think Australians have a, an excellent reputation, repu reputation for circus around the world. Like over in Canada, we just had GOM Circus. Um, they just... Uh, they performed at the Lutsohu. I think they opened the festival, so that's one of the biggest theatres and so many people from the industry go and see that. So, you know, Australia makes leaps and strides. Mm. So when did you find out about this new development and what was your reaction when you heard that Swinburne was pausing new enrolments in this, this course that had done so much um, for you? I read one of the emails because I'm on the... Um, the mailing list for Nike, so I saw, I saw it in an email, and I was kind of devastated because, um, yeah, I like it's, kind of, it's disappointing. Like I, I want I want to be able to go back there and um, you know, uh, see all my you know old friends and all my old coaches and stuff like that, and I, I want to be able to go there and work in between my contracts. It's a really beautiful place to be. So, um, you know, <clears throat> if they put a pause on students going in, you know, it kind of slows things down and. It, does, it just it feels like it's not going to thrive the way it used to. Does it ch change the morale in the industry in terms of feeling that, um, you know, the future's been stymied in this way? Yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, like in, in Australian circus, like I feel like um, leading an arts career in Australia is already pretty difficult, so... I feel like when you put more roadblocks in the way, it just makes it harder and harder. You know, some people, they work a normal job to fund the passion, which is the circus career. So it just makes it even more difficult. 
And you also mentioned the potential to work at NICA. Um, can you sort of explain that a bit bit uh, further? You you also mentioned the sort of lifespan of a or working life of a performer is limited. Can you can you build on that to to show us the connection between uh, your work as a performer and potential work as a, a teacher instructor later? So. Um... Like when I'm in between contracts, it's really nice to be able to go back and, um, you know, go back to the building and, and coach. And so I'm building um, teaching skills so that I can contribute to the community later in a better way and, um, you know, become a better coach so that when I finish performing or I don't want to perform anymore, I can I can go back there and I can give everything that I learned back to the new generation and hopefully, hopefully they do something even better with it. Um, the other thing you can do uh, is like, go and study another degree. So because I've got a bachelor, I can go and study a master's in something. So I have that option in the future if I if I want it. I can go on and do directing or culture and arts management. Um, yeah. And do you think uh, for listeners that... Um might not be circus followers. Do you yeah, think? Yeah. Do you think the general community is aware of the different ways that circus skills might be be used, and uh, the different ways they might be integrated into other types of theatre or performative spaces, rather than just you know the top hat traditional circus? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I guess when we when we think about circus, you know, some people might still think uh, elephants and lions and stuff like that. Um, but I feel like circus has taken uh, leaps and bounds in like uh, contemporary and uh, music music theater industry. So the last contract I was on was a music theater one. So it was um, we're doing Velvet Rewired, Marsha Hines is singing all these um, amazing disco songs, and we're doing acrobatics to it. So it wasn't exactly like a circus show, but it was a it was a music theater show. So you can put you can apply circus to so many other live performances. Um, yeah, so it's not just like uh, not just the the tigers and the elephants and stuff like that. It's 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 more than that now. I feel like it's it's grown so much more since then. So if the course is stopped um, mm-hmm. as of next year, there won't be a, another intake of mm-hmm. students who will be able to undertake that training. So mm-hmm. what what will that actually mean for the performance um, industry that relies on circus performers, both? here um, and what does it mean for those who were aspiring to be uh, circus performers will they have to go elsewhere to get that training yeah yeah so there are schools overseas but obviously we you know we're, we're proud of the, the school that we built here so we we want that to continue but um a lot of students who were looking to enroll they you know they have to they now have to go look elsewhere so they have to go look in europe and pay international fees and go overseas and it's a lot more complicated and some people might not want to take those risks like it could be bigger and scarier and you know they could be less likely to to chase that dream because it's so much difficult so much more difficult now Mm. Um, and then we lose we lose a pool of um, wonderful performers to put on shows in our local areas so yeah absolutely um, Swinburne University says that it is proudly a university defined and inspired by technology and innovation and the courses we offer need to match that. They have just taken the decision to pause enrolments in NICA's Bachelor of Circus Arts for 2024 while they assess 
the course's future viability and strategic alignment with Swinburne's priorities. What do you think about that? Well, I don't know what, you know, its future viability and strategic alignments and priorities are, but um, they, do, they do state that they're looking towards, like, its long-term sustainability by working with big government. So, like, I guess that's a positive, but I don't know what our government's interest in funding more arts in the future is like, I, I guess we'll see. If you were sp- um, I hope, yeah. Sorry, you go. If you were speaking uh, directly with Swinburne's decision makers, what would uh, you like to tell them? I'd like to tell them to find a way to um, like pick it up, keep it going, because it's such a beautiful place and it would be such a shame to see it, you know, um, take a step down. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us and no sharing your experience. And uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that uh, Swinburne reevaluates. I believe yep. that uh, just last year, actually, December, I was reading, it was the 21st anniversary of NICA's um, mm-hmm. establishment. And the Vice Chancellor of Swinburne was saying that the circus school was an incredibly good fit with Swinburne's ethos of offering unique educational experience. So who knows what's happened in uh, six months. Yeah. All right. Have a good day. Thank you. No worries. Thank you, Claudia. See you later. And that was specialist aerial artist and NICA graduate Harley Timmermans speaking to us about NICA, the National Institute of Circus Arts, And we did invite Swinburne onto the program to speak about the decision to pause the graduate program um, and they declined but provided us with the the comment that I read out earlier about Swinburne's uh, re-evaluating its priorities and uh, the future viability of this course. So I think that is it for today's program, Grace. Uh, It was... uh, Pretty jam-packed from Palestinian writings, um, future of circus in Australia, uh, the Yes campaign, and the writer's writers strike. Yeah, we went global, and then we went to Victoria, and then we went global again. And not sorry, we went we went global, and then Australia, and global, and then. International. International news, yeah. International. So we, we covered a lot. We covered very different, very different variation of aspects of yeah. topics of current affairs today. Yeah. And lots of uh, stories showing us how the arts inter- integrate with our, our lives and give us meaning and um, and pleasure too. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So, we've, yeah, we've done done a lot today. It's quite hectic. But we, we we ended up good as usual. We resolved everything. So yeah, that's all, that's more important. We hope uh, our listeners have a great week. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you to all our guests this morning who have uh, contributed to our current affairs program. We will see you all next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.